church. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'll be reading uh, verses 26 through 40 this morning. If you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the rack in front of you there. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one with you. If you're using that Bible, we'll be starting on page 960. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 40. Uh, before we read, let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we are thankful that you are a speaking God. You are a God who reveals knowledge of himself to us so that we may know what to believe and how to live it. Lord, that's why you have given us your word. And that's why you've given us your Holy Spirit, so that we would know your word, so that we could treasure your word, believe your word, hope in your word. Lord, would you bless our time of reading and hearing and preaching this morning. That it would be good for us, that it would change us, renew us. Lord, don't leave us the same. May we see Jesus. We pray it in his precious name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, there be only two or three at most. And each in turn, and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm going to preach most of this passage, uh, but verses 34 through 35, I'm going to let Neil handle that later. Uh, so ladies, you can, uh, you can talk to him about that. I feel like God has uniquely gifted him to handle that issue. I'm kidding. I mean, Neil could be uniquely gifted to handle that issue, but I am going to preach on it. And if I get anything wrong, Neil can handle it. So, 
Uh, just want, by way of reminder, uh, what we've been looking at really since chapter 11 is that, that Paul is dealing with some worship wars in Corinth. That there is all kind of mess going on when the church in Corinth comes together. They're, they're not doing the Lord's Supper right. Uh, there, there are some women, which we'll address this again, with, they're, they're praying with their heads uncovered and what's that all about? Uh, but really the main thing, and Paul's been dealing with it since chapter 12, is spiritual gifts. Uh, that these gifts of grace from God's Spirit, particularly the speaking gifts, of tongues and prophecy are being misused in the church or mishandled. And actually, it looks like the gift of tongues is, is what's being misused. Uh, we don't exactly know precisely what's happening in the church, but it would appear that those who have this gift uh, are causing a bit of a ruckus. And even we could say that, that the worship gathering is chaotic. Uh, and that's what Paul is going to address today. And so what we did last week is we got into chapter 14 where Paul says, hey, great, you can speak in tongues. I would rather you prophesy, right? Where he said prophecy is better than tongues. We looked at the first part of uh, 14 last week and did a little bit of the groundwork trying to answer maybe what we think the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy are. Uh, if you miss that, you'll have um, you'll have to just listen to the recording online. So, um but we kind of answered some of those questions last week. What I want to do today uh, is is just kind of go through a list of principles for worship. Uh, that's what Paul's dealing with is worship, the gathering of the church when they worship. And I just want to go through and even a couple of them that are mentioned uh, at the first part of 14 and just look at some principles that we can use, whether or not, you know, whether or not we believe that tongues have ceased or whether you believe that they have continued, uh, that, that there's, st- there's still a word in here, there are several words in here that apply to us, that we can use to structure our worship. Uh, I'm borrowing a, a, a good bit of my content from a friend of mine, a pastor named Mike Campbell, and he tells a story about when he and his, uh, his brother-in-law had to transport some cabinets from North Carolina to Miami. Uh, and they were doing it in a U-Haul truck, uh, and his brother-in-law has a bit of a lead foot, right? He likes to go fast. Uh, but the downside is, if you've ever driven a rented truck, you know it's only going to go so fast, right? They put a governor in there, uh, and yet despite his, knowing that the governor was there, Mike says his brother-in-law, he would, he would look over at him on the drive back, and he was like, Bearing down on the pedal, almost as if he could, if he could just force that pedal through the floor, he would get the truck to go over 80. But alas, he could not. Uh, and, and Mike uses that illustration of a governor to talk about how we view worship. Uh, that, that our view of worship is that it is governed. It is, uh, controlled by God's word. Uh, the fancy term for that in our circles is the regulative principle for worship. See, this is what theologians do when they gather in basements and they grow their facial hair out and they, and they read lots of books and don't get lots of sun, uh, is they make up, as they get words, or they make up these long words that only they can understand. But basically that term, that phrase, the regulative principle of worship means this. We believe that God orders worship, not us. That our direction in worship comes from God himself, not us, that we do not get to look at God and say, hey, here's how I want to worship you. God says no, and he does this from the very beginning of the Bible to its very end. He says from the beginning, no, this is how you will worship me, 
right? He is the king. He gets to determine how we bring our offerings before him, right? So that we, even in worship, we get our directions from God's word, right? He is the governor. We don't get to jam the pedal through the floor. He is the governor, which is helpful for us as we walk through this. So here are five principles uh, that help govern our worship from 1 Corinthians 14. One other important thing that needs to be said, this is not all that the Bible says about New Testament worship. There are several things not mentioned in here. The reading of the scriptures, uh, praying, well, praying sort of mentioned, giving, um, all of those things are part of New Testament worship. We see that in other places in the New Testament. So Paul is not giving us a textbook here, right? He's not saying, hey, here's what your worship service ought to look like. It ought to start with this and it ought to end with this. Sadly, Paul doesn't give us that because, you know, then we would have sorted all this out and we wouldn't be fighting about it. But alas, there are some principles that we can derive from this that help us know how to structure our worship. Uh, the first three uh, come out of our passage from last week, so I'll make reference to those. Uh, but you see them there on the screen behind me. The first one is this. Worship must build up. That's really kind of the theme for 1 Corinthians 14. Paul uses that word build up like six times. And so it's, it's a good, it's just a good principle of Bible reading, whether you're doing it a group or one-to-one, or even on your own, that when you're reading something and you're asking the question, what in the world is this passage about? One good principle for Bible reading is say, okay, what words are repeated? What, is the, what, is, what does the text say over and over again? And in this case, Paul says, building up over and over again, that the main goal, the, the main purpose of worship is that it must build up. Uh, which means this, one application at least is that when we come to worship, we don't just think about ourselves, but about others. Now, I realize this sounds kind of counterintuitive, right? That we, that when we come into worship, especially in the modern era, we think, oh, whoa, whoa, no, nobody, nobody needs to constrain how I worship God, right? I, if I'm, if I'm mindful of the people around me, then I'm being fearful and I don't want to do that. No, no, that's not what Paul is saying. But he is saying that worship, when we're gathered, must build, must build up, must be an encouragement as much as possible to everyone. Which is why we don't go for the theater or concert feel in worship, right? We don't lower the lights and we don't boost the volume on the music. Because we believe that worship is not just about me and God, but it is about us to God. That I need not to hear Fred and Matthew, which is great, they can lead us, but I need to hear you singing over me, right? I need to see you praying next to me. Yes, sometimes people open their eyes in prayer, right? Um, I need, and this is, this is the reason why we do recited readings, right? Where we repeat things back to each other. Because I need to hear, I need to hear you speak scripture to me. We don't do that just out of tradition's sake. I'm not a big fan of tradition for tradition's sake, right? We, we do what we do so that all may be edified, so that all may be built up. Worship must be built, must, worship must build up. Second, worship must be clear or understandable. So in order for worship to build up, it must be clearly understood. Right, if a speaker, and that's what the, the first part really Paul is dealing in those first few verses of 14, Paul's looking at these guys speaking in tongues and saying, nobody can understand you. 
And if nobody can understand you, if nobody can interpret what you're saying, then that's of no value to the body. You leave it at home, right? Your tongue, whether that's a known human tongue or uh, a spiritual mysterious tongue, that's a, a prayer language. Paul says, if nobody can understand it, that's just for you and God. It is not for the body. Because it cannot be, it cannot build up because it cannot be understood. And so, that's why Paul says prophecy is better because it's clear and it's focused on the whole body and not just the individual. And so, uh, I would apply this to us, uh, in terms of traditionalism, right? I, I would even say, uh, that traditionalism is kind of our own version of speaking in tongues. And what I mean by that is when, uh, when we do and say things that we really don't understand, uh, wh- whether that's language that we've never known what that word means, but we're just going to say it anyway because it's a good word, right? Um, then, we're, then worship is not clear to us and we are not benefited, right? Uh, so even though we're not uh, charismatic in the modern sense, um, we have our own version of this where we kind of worship tradition, right? We may even be using a tradition we don't understand simply because it's what's been handed to us. And so I would say that we can apply this principle in that we need to interpret, right, our own tradition. We need to understand. We don't want to throw out tradition simply because we like things that are new and shiny. Uh, because new and shiny is not always better. But there's a richness in our traditions that we need to draw out and explain so that they can benefit us more. So worship must build up. Worship must be clear. And worship must be aware of unbelievers. That's what Paul says in verses 24 and 25. He says, if an unbeliever or an outsider comes into your meeting and he hears you speaking in tongues, he's going to think you're out of your minds. Rather, it's good that you prophesy so that when the unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted, his heart is laid bare, and he worships God. So worship must be aware of unbelievers. And I I think this corrects the view of some who say that worship, the worship gathering is only for the Christian. That is certainly the view of some in the church that that really worship is about the believer and God. And we don't need to worry about outsiders or unbelievers in our midst. And all I would ask is, is that how you treat somebody who comes into your home? Right. When they ask you, hey, where's the bathroom? Do you just say, just find it? Of course not, right? We want what we do in worship to be understandable to those outside, right? I don't think that's a bad thing. I'm not saying that we lower the bar or whatever else may be worried about in that. But worship must be aware that there are those in our midst who don't know Jesus yet. And in fact, isn't it interesting? Paul assumes those people will be there. Paul assumes that non-Christians will be in the worship gathering because he gives principles for how to deal with them. So that means that when it comes to those hard words, we want to explain them. And it means that even if people have been in around our church for years, we don't want to assume anything. We want to always keep the gospel and Jesus clearly in front of us. That was three. Number four, worship must be ordered, right? You saw this there in verse 40 here. Now, uh, Paul, 
starting in verse 26, kind of moves into some practical how-tos, but he summarizes it all in verse 40 with this. All things should be done decently and in order. That is the Presbyterian life verse. Right? It makes my reserved Anglo-Saxon type A personality just swell. You know, it's good stuff there. Decently and in order. And that's not a bad thing because, again, it's in God's word. God commands us to do things in an orderly way. And so, why does Paul feel the need to say this? Well, while we're not 100% sure what exactly is happening in Corinth, it does appear that things are very chaotic. Uh, maybe that people are all speaking at the same time. Uh, and so, in, in fact, Paul says to them right in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so what Paul says here, he speaks to these people who are disrupting the worship service. That these, these folks who had speaking gifts, it looks like particularly tongues, were speaking over each other and creating a very disordered environment. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not reflective of God. A yes, worship is to God, but it's also enabled by God. And when you do this, when you speak over each other and no one can understand what's happening, that is not reflective of God because God is a God of peace. God is a communicating God who very clearly speaks to his people. He is not, God does not like confusion. God wants it to be clear. And so, um, one other thing that's important to notice as he gives these instructions is that these miraculous gifts can be controlled. Do you notice that? That these, the, the tongues and the prophecy, Paul actually looks at these people, he gives similar instructions to both, and he says, hey, if somebody else is talking, you be quiet. Or, if you don't have anybody to interpret your tongue, then you be quiet. So, it's interesting, these are not ecstatic outbursts, right? And, and if you think about it, maybe in the modern movement, we kind of have this idea that like, no man, if the Spirit's at work, you just got to let him work, and I just got to, I got to say whatever I got to say, I got to get it out. The Spirit won't let me be quiet. Paul says, no, that's not how this works. If you think God's giving you a word, and he's given this sister a word, then, and she starts talking first, you need to be quiet, right? Uh, you can, these gifts can be restrained in the interest of the body. They're not ecstatic, explosive utterances. They are actually gifts that can be restrained and controlled. Uh, in fact, for the good of the church, they must be controlled. They must be limited. Now, does that... Does that strike you as odd in a, in a culture that loves kind of freedom of expression, right? No, 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 no. If, if, we're, if it's really good, we've got to be able to express ourselves. Paul says, no, that's not the point. Just ask a, just ask a farmer uh, if when he goes to work, he lets, uh, you know, in order to cultivate his field the best, he just lets nature express itself, Right? Uh, whether Now, whether that's an organic or inorganic farmer, like whatever chemicals or substances he may use to do that, or she, here, she farmer, right? Um, just, just ask him, like, hey, do we just let the environment take care of itself? No. You control it, right? You pull weeds. You set up fences to keep animals out, right? You level the field so that it can get the most growth, right? We 
do things to control and manipulate environments for its good all the time, limits and controls are not a bad thing. In fact, limits and controls can actually lead to more growth, not less, right? So in this way, Paul gives some order uh, to the tongue speakers. He says in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, right? So, so uh, we're not looking for six or ten, just a couple of you, and each in turn. So you got to do it one at a time. And someone has to interpret. And guess what? If there's nobody there who can interpret what you're saying, you just need to be silent. You don't need to speak. To the prophets, Paul says this. Again, let two or three prophets speak. You get a revelation, a word from the Lord. Great. One at a time. Right? Uh, if a revelation is made to Sitting there, let the first be silent. Just wait. Uh, and they have to be weighed. So what a prophet says has to be weighed. Weighed against what? Has to be weighed and judged against the word. This implies that there is, and we're going to get to this in a second, there is some authority in the church to judge what comes out of a person's mouth. All right? Uh, and And this is why... I'm going to take a slightly different view of this kind of prophecy uh, than maybe some others, right? So, and I talked about this last week. The real crux of the issue here with tongues and prophecy is this. Is it revelatory or not? So is it, is it God speaking infallibly like he has in the Bible? Is that what tongues and, and prophecy, as Paul mentions them here, are doing? Is it, is it God speaking infallibly like he does in the scriptures? If that is true, if that's, what, if that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 14, then we can say no tongues and prophecy have ceased because there is no word. There is no, there is no further development of God's, uh, you know, kind of like the Book of Mormon, right? There's no, God's not giving us more messages that has ceased. My opinion, and only my opinion, um, if it looks like what's happening in Corinth is, <clears throat> Corinth, these prophets are being weighed by church authority. Their, their prophecies are being checked against established authority. So the Old Testament scriptures, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, which would become the New Testament. Okay, So these prophets are being weighed. And judged. They would not be doing that if this was a direct, infallible word from God, like through Paul. Paul seems to have a different level of authority than these prophets. I'm open to challenge on that, but that's kind of what I see happening here. Okay? Paul seems to have a different level of authority, and we're going to get to that in a minute. Right? These prophets, they may be getting a word from the Lord, but it's not infallible. It's fallible. It can be questioned. It can be called on the, uh, on the carpet. So, just a, just a thought there. That's, uh, me thinking through it. That's not necessarily, um, God's honest truth. So, do that, do with that what you will. Um, but prophecies have to be weighed. Okay, so uh, worship must be ordered, both tongue speakers and prophets. Now let's get to the really bothersome verses. Worship must be governed. Worship must be ordered, number four. Worship must be governed, number five. 
Verses 34 through 36 are kind of sticky for us. Of course, culturally, we hear, uh, we hear the Bible say something like, uh, women are not allowed to speak in church and automatically, uh, our modern sensibilities go, are you chauvinist? Right? Uh, how can he possibly say that about women? Um, does he think women are stupid? Um, no. Paul doesn't think that, and the New Testament doesn't think that. Uh, In fact, the New Testament and the Bible as a whole gives more honor and weight to women than anyone in their culture would have at the time. All right? Not only are there a number of uh, women heroes from the Old Testament, in fact, they sometimes seem to be more faithful than their male counterparts, Uh, but even as we get into the New Testament, right? Uh, Right at the very beginning... Uh, women are given honor. It's, who, who do we hear from first in the story of Jesus? We hear from Baron Elizabeth and a uh, Virgin Mary, right? Uh, two women who would have been marginalized into the outside. And who are the first people at Jesus' tomb? Mary and the women. Where are the men hiding in fear? The women alone are the first witnesses, which, by the way, they would not have counted as witnesses in Jewish court. A woman's testimony was considered uh, unreliable. And yet Jesus deems these women worthy to be his first witnesses. They get to come first. Uh, So the Bible does not denigrate women. In fact, it honors women in a culture that would have denigrated women. The Bible always challenges cultural assumptions, whether that's in the first century or in our century. All right. Um, but there's an, so, so Paul is not a chauvinist. He's not just reflecting the tendencies of his day when he says this. Um, and even if he was, are you saying then that we just need to kind of take this part out? Uh, and if we do that, uh, if you say, okay, well, these few verses, uh, they're not really authoritative. They don't apply to us. Uh, where does that leave you with the rest? Which other parts of the Bible would you like to take out? Because they don't quite square with how you see the world or how we see the world. So that's a dangerous game to play. It is either God's word or it is not. And we must either take it as such or we do not. Which leads us to the question, okay, well, if this is Paul inspired by God, what is Paul actually saying? Which still leaves us with a bit of a wrinkle because back in chapter 11 and verse 5, we can go back and look at that real quick. There was this issue of women who were praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered. And what we said back then is that Paul is, um, Paul is saying there's a distinction between men and women. That men have a certain role in the church and women have another role. And they are not, um, they are, they are different in their role, but they are not the same. That women and men play a different role in the family. They play a different role in the church. One is not subservient to the other. Women are not to cover their heads because they are inferior to men. That's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is it's a sign of submission to the husband's authority. And again, if you want to to go check our website for that passage, for that sermon, you can probably hear more there. Um, But what I do want to point out in verse 5 is Paul says this. Every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Did you notice that Paul says every woman who prays or prophesies? He assumes 
that women, and this is in public worship, this is not at home, this is not on their own, this is in the gathering of the church, there are women praying and prophesying in the gathering of the church. So why then would Paul in 14 say women should keep silent? If he's just said in 11, yes, women pray and prophesy, then in verse 14, he changes his mind and says, okay, well, no, you guys actually need to be quiet, right? Let's give Paul some credit. I don't know that he's confused or contradicting himself. Um, there may be another approach we can take. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say uh, with others that these verses are continuing the theme from prophecy. And this time they deal with authority, right? Uh, Paul has been speaking to prophets. They're to speak in order, not to speak over each other, each other. Their speech is to be weighed or judged, right? Every prophecy is evaluated on whether or not it lines up with the Old Testament and with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And while, so, so this is a question of authority. Our view of women in church leadership comes from 1 Timothy 2 and 3, where we see Paul say that women are not to exercise authority over men. And where elders are to be men. And so we do believe that in the church, men hold the position of authority. Again, that is not because men are superior to women. That is not because men are gifted better than women. It is simply the way that God has ordered this distinction within his church. And so that means when it comes to evaluating and weighing prophecies, that belongs to the authority of the church and not to the women. Right, Probably to the teachers and elders, they are the ones who would hear the prophecies and say, yay or nay, or this is good, that is not. So again, while it's unclear what's happening, what may be happening is that when prophets are speaking up in the church, there's a group of women who are trying to exercise authority that does not belong to them by judging prophecy, which they are not allowed to do. Or another possibility is that uh, this is a wife or a group of wives, uh, a, a wife of a particular prophet is cutting in when her husband is speaking to ask questions, which is why Paul would say, ask those questions at home. Don't interrupt the worship service. And so whatever whatever the option may be there, and I realize that that may not settle it for you. In fact, no one is settled on this. We're making our best shot. But either way... Uh, what's happening is the authority of church leadership is being challenged and the order of worship is being disrupted, which is why, again, Paul says God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Right. He's giving instructions for the ordering and structure of worship in the church. So what I don't think Paul is saying is that women must always be silent, partially because he would be contradicting himself, but also because he says the exact same thing. I want you to see this. He says the exact same thing to tongue speakers and prophets. In verse 26, what does he tell the tongue speaker? If no one is there to interpret, you need to be silent. To the prophets, he says, if someone else is speaking first, you need to be silent. Paul is not looking at them and saying, don't ever say anything in the church ever, ever again. He's saying, no, you wait for the right moment and then you may speak, right? So Paul is a little bit more nuanced, I think, than, ex than it initially sounds. So all that to say, what is it that governs worship? How do we know 
what governs worship. Paul tells us in verse 36. He says, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? The Corinthians were probably acting like they were special. They had a corner on the revelation market. And Paul is saying, whoa. Remember, the word of God didn't originate with you. And you are not the only ones it has come to. Where did the word of God originate from? Who brought it to Corinth? Paul. Paul is the one who brought the word of God to Corinth. And so now Paul uh, gives himself an authority. Or actually he doesn't give it to himself. He, he mentions the authority given to him by God. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. Hey, listen, if you ever hear me say that, and I'm not reading a literal command of the Lord, you, I'm, I'm giving you the okay to throw a rock at my head. All right? Um, Paul is in a unique position of authority. He has seen the risen Jesus. He has been called and ordained as an apostle, right? One of the foundation, uh, one of the foundation pieces of the church. And so he is looking at what's going on in Corinth and he's saying, no, listen to me. I have the spirit in a unique measure. My words, because they are God's words, govern what you are doing. And so maybe we would even add a, a sixth principle to this. And we've already said it, that worship must be biblical. That if we are going to do something in worship, it must come from God's word itself. Paul says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. It's a pretty stern warning. If anyone doesn't recognize this, he's not recognized. And to not be recognized by Paul, God's emissary, is to, be not, is to not be recognized by God himself. And so we want to be careful here. Just a couple of uh, concluding applications What do we do with all of these principles? One, we need to know the book, right? If the book, the Bible, is what governs us, we need to know it. If, and I think that's a big if, there are prophecies and tongues that continue today, then they must be understood and evaluated by God's word. If they cannot be, they are not legit. The only, and the only way a congregation, the only way that you can judge whether such messages are from God requires that you know God's perfect revelation in the scriptures. We have to know the book. But also, and I'm stretching my Presbyterian just a little bit here, we need to make space to listen to the Spirit. And if you think that I am out on, my, on a Presbyterian limb here, I would encourage you to look into the history of the early Scottish Presbyterian Church. Uh, according to one historian, they make modern charismatic revivals uh, look garden variety, right? That our Protestant forebears were very keen to balance the truth of God's word and the experience of God's word. And I think for many of us, our lives are so filled with busyness and noise that we, 
We don't make space to pray, and we certainly don't make space to just be silent and listen. And I am, I am pointing at myself in that. I am guilty of this as well. That we ought to make space to listen for God's Spirit, right? We can go too far in the other direction. Decently and in order does not mean stuffy and dead. There's a reason we're called the frozen chosen, right? Decently and in order does not have to mean stuffy and dead. In fact, there's a tension here. There's a line. Paul is walking. There is power at work in Corinth. There are things going on in Corinth, and Paul says, pull it back just a little bit. Right? Remember that there's some, there's a framework here that you need to live in. So I'm glad you're filled with the Spirit, but you need to, but you need to restrain or control, uh, your spiritual gifts. We want both to be true. I'll close with this illustration. Cause I think sometimes what happens is for Bible people, that makes us a little bit nervous when I say, uh, we need to, we need to take space to be silent and listen for the Spirit. Right? What's the first thing that usually comes up is, well, how do I know that was God speaking? Well, you evaluate it by the word. But if, if you just, if we say we're silent on the, on the car, on the commute tomorrow, in the car, you turned off the radio and you said, God, who do you want me to pray for? And then you didn't say anything. And you just see who he brought, who he brought to mind. Would it really matter whether that was God? Or you? No. Why? Because you're going to pray for him. It's not a bad thing. Right? I think so. Don't let your discomfort, uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm an Anglo-Saxon type A reserve kind of dude, right? I don't, I don't like to color outside the lines. Um, but, so we got discomfort with that, and that's okay. Um, but, uh, this happened to me a few months ago. Uh, I usually wake up early on Sunday mornings anyway, uh, though I usually don't have, a, I don't have any trouble sleeping. That waking up on Sunday morning is a hard wake up. And so that's what made this uh, stick out to me. Uh, it was about 3 a.m. and I woke right up. Uh, and uh, a boy or a son of a friend of mine, a friend that we'd had in seminary, um, came to mind. Now, I haven't talked to my friend in months, maybe years. And I certainly haven't talked to his son in years. The last time I saw Jude, you know, he was this tall. And now he's this tall. And yet, I woke up and Jude was on my mind. I didn't have any details. Didn't know anything about it. So all I did was pray for Jude. I didn't even know what to pray. But he was on my mind, so I prayed. Now again, that's very weird to me. Okay? I like that. That's outside the lines for me. But I felt like that was a good thing. Now, maybe, maybe that was because I'd had too much salsa the night before, right? Maybe it was indigestion. You know what? I prayed for Jude anyway. What if, what if we did that this week? If we carved out a little silent space just to listen. Lord, who do you want me to pray for? Who can I encourage this week? What would what impact would that have? There's probably 85 people in the room. 85 words of encouragement or 85 prayers spoken on behalf of someone else. Just a just an invitation, right? To make space 
to see how the Spirit might work. Remember, God's not going to work outside of what he's revealed. So you don't have to be too worried, right? If you make space and you get something really troubling like, you know, a word that I'm supposed to go ram into somebody with my car, that's not from God, all right? You can be pretty sure, okay? Um, Weigh that by the word, but then live into it, right? And then I think we'll walk a little bit better in the tension of, of this passage. Let's pray. God in heaven. Oh, Lord, we're so glad that you work, uh, that you work in our midst sometimes in very unexpected uh, and mysterious ways. And yet, God, that you have given gifts to your church for our upbuilding, for our growth, for our good. God, if anything that I have said falls outside of your authority, if I'm on dangerous ground, I pray, Lord, that you would strike that from our memories, that it would be uh, even, Lord, that I would see it uh, and come back in front of this congregation and say, hey, I was wrong. Um, but, Lord, help us to know your word and listen to your spirit. To know your word and listen to your spirit. Lord, and for those uh, who are in our midst who don't know you, who've never had a relationship with you, God, I pray that this morning they have heard your word and that your spirit is at work in their hearts, drawing them to faith. I pray that they would believe the good news and be saved. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Every first Sunday we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward as I prepare the table. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. We just, uh, we just recited this in the catechism, right? It's this meal that God has given us to strengthen and nourish us in the faith, but also help us to persevere to the last day when we will feast in the house of Zion together, right? So as you uh, take the bread and drink the cup, uh, I want you to do so humbly, knowing, uh, knowing your sin, knowing your shortcomings, bringing them to the Lord, but I also want you to do so expectantly, knowing that this is a means of grace. You don't have to have your act together to come to the Lord's table. We do ask that if there's unrepentant sin in your life, that you, that you deal with that. If it's between you and the Lord, deal with that. If it's between you and another brother or sister, uh, then, then deal with that, right? That, that you wait on the elements, that you let them pass you by so that you can deal with, uh, the sin weighing on your heart. Um, but if you can, if you can look at Jesus and say, I'm yours. Thank you for loving me. You've forgiven me. This table is for you. If you cannot look at Jesus and say, I'm yours. Uh, you've forgiven me, I'm in your blood, and I'm washed by the blood of the Lamb, then we ask that you just let the elements pass you by, right? So why we say children who haven't professed faith yet don't need to take the Lord's Supper. This is a sacrament for those who believe. Uh, but for those who don't believe, Jesus is for you. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus calls you and wants you to believe on Him. On the night in which He was betrayed, Jesus took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat, this is my body. We'll take the, the bread together, um, wait just kind of like you would at a family meal. Once everybody's received their bread, 
We'll take it and eat it together.